A little aloha around the world and breakfast with Bob. Thank you, Poncho Man. Welcome everybody to Breakfast with Bob. My name is Bob Babbitt. We are brought to you by Hoka One One Master Spas, Clash Endurance, You Can, Hyper Ice, Premium Plus Sports, Form Smart Swim Goggles, and our Challenged Athletes Foundation. We just sent out. 3,038 grants totaling $5.1 million keep challenged athletes in the game of life through sports. I am so excited to chat with the birthday boy. He just turned 58 years old, one of the legends of our sport between 87 and 96. I think he won like 83 of 130 races, two-time triathlete of the year. Mr. Mike Pig joins us. Mike, how the heck are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's good to catch up with you again. Always such a pleasure, Mike, to chat with you. Hey, so you got into this sport like everybody else. You watched the Ironman on TV? Yeah, it was uh, Dave Scott doing Ironman. They got me fired up to say, hey, I want to try this. And, and uh, so what, that was 83? Uh, let's see. When you fired up, 82? Oh, no, 85, 85. 85 was the first time you came over. Uh, yeah, I think so. Set a yep, goal to yep. do Ironman after seeing Dave uh, complete a phenomenal race and spent uh, eight months getting ready for it and uh, had a great day over there. I, got, I think I got seventh in 19. You got seventh in 1985. And uh, so, but growing up, more of a cross country guy with what, a little bit of backstroke swimming in your background? You know, a little bit of everything. Um, my parents got me into swimming at the age of 10. And uh, that was great. It got me excited about traveling and going to meets. And I did that for four years and then got into high school and did basketball, track and field and cross country. And thanks to great coaches, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Chuck Ehlers, just showed me how to enjoy working hard and, and covering ground and, and competing. So when you, when you, seventh, since. Yeah, when you had seventh at Ironman 1985 and you had a, you know, uh, I think you were seventh there at 85 and then ninth, the second in 86 and fourth in 87 and second in 88. I think you just by two minutes and 11 seconds, I think you were out of, of winning the, the Ironman. But really, when I think of you, I think of you out of the saddle. You're, you were really the first Uber cyclist, one of the first Uber cyclists in the sport. Came out of the water a little bit behind, but rode his way through the field. When did you realize that that shorter distance was really better for you? Um, well, for one thing, the sport was still growing. And yeah. when I came into the sport, everyone was trying to do everything from Olympic distance to sprints to half Ironmans to Ironmans. And then as the sport got uh, aged, uh, people got more specific in the events they were doing. And you had your people that are Ironman people and you had your people that are Olympic distance. And uh, it just looked like anything under four hours I, I could do better at. But when you put me in those longer races, uh, my weakness in running really showed up. So um, that's how I stuck to the uh, Olympic distance. So as you're getting better and better at that Olympic distance, we had the, you know, one of the, the tough parts is when you look at a lot of the races you dominated, that United States Triathlon Series, the, you know, Coke Grand Prix, uh, Bakersfield, all these events, world's toughest, those events don't exist anymore. So, you know, when, when you talk about somebody's legacy, 
it's always difficult. Uh, people talk about Scott Molina as 1988 Ironman champion and forget about the hundreds of other races they won because those races don't exist anymore. Yeah, why well, Scott was called the Terminator. Yeah, he's called the Terminator because he, he won everything. So yeah. it's, it's hard when people say, okay, oh, you're interviewing Mike Pig. And I'm like, yeah, he was the dominant guy. When you talk about the big four, for then it became really the big five. And then in 87, it was really the big two. It was you and Mark. And people don't realize that because Mark went on to win the Ironman six times. When you look back at becoming uh, really the, the, you and Mark were the two best guys in the world, the progression of knocking off the other big four, Dave Scott, Scott Molina, uh, and Tinley. Do you remember when you knocked off each one of those guys for the first time? Oh, definitely. I mean, I got into the sport and those guys were my idols and I was reading traffic magazine um, and just following that. And it was such a treat, one, to be in a race with them and two, to be able to compete with them. And then three, eventually uh, beat them one by one. So talk about, do you remember when you beat Dave for the first time? Um, I think it's Scott Tinley is the first one I knocked off. Yeah. And I think Dave Scott was the next. And then Scott Molina. And then the hardest one to knock off was Mark Allen. So I just say I knock at, off, you know, I get them in one or two races and they came back and spanked my butt as well. And, and we know how dominant Mark Allen was in the sport. Yeah. Great, great people to admire and great people to race against. And could you guys be friends and potentially train together and then have to go out and kick each other's butt? That's what was so great about our sport. Um, you know, first I got into Ironman because I was saw Dave Scott and what he was doing. And I actually called him up and say, Hey, could I come train with you? And he let me come down here and watch him eat cottage cheese and go do hundred mile bike rides. And so I spent two or three days in Davis with them, just seeing what it takes to be a triathlete. And then later on, uh, we started all moving to uh, Boulder, Colorado. And so I'm training day in, day out with Scott Molina and Kenny Souza and Mark Allen and when I got to visit uh, San Diego, Scott Tinley, and, and join in the Wednesday ride, all these legendary things uh, that you, you followed, and it was just nice to be a part of and saw how it developed athletes. Um, and yeah, I mean, you would check out the race course of a person you're going to have to race with the next day, say in the Virgin Islands. And then after that, we'd all go for a group swim the next day after a race because the areas are so beautiful you're in, like St. Croix and just be a, a, a bunch of friends. And so um, I think triathlons is a very, very friendly sport because we work so hard too and we need each other to push through it. So a typical week, what was a typical training week for you back then in the heyday? Back in the heyday when you could recover, um, you know, you'd try to put in 300 miles of biking, uh, 40 to 60 miles of running and 20 to 25,000 yards of swimming. <laughs> full-time job and you were really that was first a full-time job my motto was swim bike and run sleep and eat that was it and then throw in your massages so when i look at 87 and i thought that was such a great year because you had won what tampa miami memphis houston bakersfield and mark really had been shooting kellogg's commercials and doing all sorts of stuff and yeah. then atlanta usts which i think he thought was going to be a mellow race there's you who's on a hot streak and you, you know, typical, a uh, little behind in the swim, 
pass mark on the bike, he runs you down. And that didn't just happen there. Then you went to Baltimore, right? And let off the bike, ran 34 minute 10K. You ran 34 minute 10K. Mark ran 32 away and, and caught you, right? And There's always a minute and a half to two minutes that I need to try to push on the bike, hold them off in the run. Yeah. And then USTS Chicago was the next one. And he ran you down there. And then was it Vancouver? Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The swimmers were led off course. And so you're ahead, right? And then Mark, Mark, you and Mark are, are riding together. Right. And Mark figured out that was a 12K run. And you were there. And Mark said, hey, well, okay, 12K, it's longer. I'll run away from Mike. And he says, two miles, Mike's there. Four miles, Mike's there. And he said, we went through 30 minutes, six miles in 30 minutes. <laughs> That's the longest I got to run side by side with Mark Allen. Pretty cool though, huh? That was a good day at the office. Yeah. Well, so all of that leads to Hilton Head, right? And so at that this point, is right? Is it 87? 87. Yeah. Yeah. That's the uh, first time I got to knock off Mark Allen. He was the last guy on the podium to uh, uh, stay ahead of and, and win national championships. And so that was a phenomenal day, a very um, memorable day. Well, but it was probably one of my guttiest efforts because Harold and I got off the bike together. We ran side by side for about four miles. And then I, I break Harold on that day. And um, and I think I'm coming home clean. And I look back over my shoulder coming off the golf course onto the road. And there's Mark Allen. And <laughs> he's made up of like two minutes. Me and I go, I didn't come this far to get second. And so I said, okay, it's, it's 100%. Um, and, uh, Mark, uh, fortunately he was there cause he, um, helped me see what hundred percent was all about. What was fascinating to me, that was, you know, triathlon on TV was still fairly new and the coverage with Mike plant doing the announcing and the camera was two inches from you as you came, I still, it's in my mind's eye. I'm like, you're coming around this right turn. You look back on the golf course, and there's the specter of death in Mark Allen, like I who's think, run I you think down. I had a half mile to go. Yeah, half mile to go, and you are going a thousand percent. You like you said, a hundred percent. That was a thousand percent, and yeah. you know it looked closer than it was because you had it, but still, him coming back on that was. Do you look at that as one of your best wins? Uh, yes, I do. That was a major, major breakthrough. I uh, just got to see how deep you could uh, dig and to finally uh, complete getting all the, uh, the big four. Um, it was just, I was smiling for a week after that. So I remember we did a piece in competitor and I, don't, I forget what year it was, but you were going back to Chicago USTS and you were, you, you'd been adopted at birth and I think you were going to go and meet your birth parents for the first time when you went back. Well, to it wasn't Chicago. the first time, but it's the first time that, um, that I met my um, birth parents, um, both of them at the same time. So at the age of 30, um, Marcy uh, uh, located my birth parents. And uh, long story short, I met them both on the same day that day. I, I planned to meet my mom in Tennessee and I had a six hour layover in Chicago and my birth dad wasn't quite sure about meeting me. 
I wouldn't surprise him anyway. Didn't want to cause any problems. And it turned out later on, he told his family and we got together and we had a great time. But to bring those two together and, and have each one in my arm uh, for a photo, uh, probably one of the best photos of my life, um, was a treat and a half. Have them watch me race in Chicago and have them there. It's the first time they've seen each other since high school. And so it was a pretty interesting day, overwhelming day. Um, I think I got second that day, but I was still higher in the kites. <laughs> it's one of those things when you, when uh, I've talked to folks who, you know, you struggle for a while going, do I want to meet him? Right. Was that something, did you no, struggle with No, it wasn't that? that. I was very happy with my adopted parents. Right. Uh, I just felt like they're my mom and dad. And I think the biggest curiosity from, from my viewpoint which I just wanted to see where I came from and see um, how they act, how they move and what they look like, their personalities. Uh, that was the deep thing burning inside, uh, but never where I had to go get it. Right. But Marcy had some time on her hands and turned into a great private eye and found them. And uh, I got to meet them, meet them both. And then my birth mom, Jeanette, uh, we spent 17, 20 years just visiting each other two or three times a year, coming out here, spending a week with me, watching my kids grow up. It was just a, a treat and a half. I have a half brother, half sister. And then I got to meet my dad, Bill Huff, in um, Wisconsin and play golf with him, have him throw a, a softball at me at 70 miles an hour. And, and um, that was a treat. And I was so fortunate because he, he passed away three years after I met him. So I was very fortunate. And then I just lost my uh, birth mom this year in January or December of last year. And I got to know them uh, for a good amount of time. And so I feel very, very blessed to have that opportunity. Thanks to so Marcy. if you had not become a professional triathlete, what was your career path? Uh, well, for me, it was going to uh, become an engineer because the only reason I was heading down the road is I was good at math. And so I thought I'd be a good engineer, and uh, but I was not happy uh, studying the books, doing physics. I enjoyed math. Physics is a little bit tougher, but just not happy looking at the books. I just kept looking outside, wanting to be outside. And I'd rather dig ditches and be outside than sitting inside staring at a computer. So uh, that burning desire of being outside and then seeing Dave Scott on Ironman kept me outside. And uh, I was very fortunate that all those events happened. When did you think that you could actually make a living at the sport? Because one thing to, you know, have your job and then go off and go to a race and it's fun, but that's a big commitment to decide, okay, I'm going all in. It was a go all in one year and then get back out and get back into college was the plan. And then I just kept climbing the ladder and getting really close to the top guys. And then one little thing happened uh, after another. Uh, a company, NTC, NTTC, uh, picked me up, yeah, which is a triathlon club, training club, and put a team together. And then that just led to one thing, another. More and more money was coming in the sport, thanks to Bud Light and some other sponsors. Coca-Cola, yeah. Yep, Coca-Cola, and that series happened, and it allowed allowed me to climb the ladder to where I was making a phenomenal salary by 1988, 1989, thanks to Pioneer Stereos and sunglasses and Trek bicycles. I think I had three or four different bike sponsors and and shoe sponsors and Saucony shoes and 
thanks to all those companies, uh, they allowed me to do what I really had a lot of love for. So you look at the people you raced against from Scott Tinley, Dave Scott, Scott Molina, Mark Allen, Kenny Souza, Simon Lessing. Yeah, Greg Wells in there. Brad Bevan. I mean, when you look back at those guys, that's sort of the golden era. And what was it that made each one of those guys like like a Dave Scott? What made him special? Uh, what I see in Dave Scott is determination. I mean, for him to live in Davis, California and pump out the miles that he did and the temperatures, you know, Davis can get hot up to 100 degrees and, and it's just flat and boring. And he just would go out there and grind day in, day out uh, was what made him so tough. And then he had a great engine too. Scott Molina. Uh, that was the workhorse of all workhorses, uh, almost to his detriment. Um, it just, he, he climbed to the top. He, I mean, he would ride 20 miles, uh, Portland triathlon. He'd ride 20 miles to the race before starting the race. And then he'd ride home with his backpack on their back to the hotel. And he was just a mega mileage trainer. And yeah, it made him great, but also, uh, gave him some bumpy roads after that from training so hard. So he had, he had to learn how to rest more, is my opinion. Well, you know, it's fascinating, as I remember, because Molina probably had more background in kinesiology and a lot of he understood what the other guys did. So he realized that the top swimmers swam 30 to 40,000 meters a week and the top cyclists in just in that sport of cycling were 300 to 500 and the top runners were 80 to 100. So I'll just put all three of those together and train 40 hours a week and I'll be better than everybody else. And it worked for a while. Right. It, that was probably one of my biggest learning things, too, is I was trying to put three sports and treat them as three separate sports to put triathlons together. And it took me the longest time to realize it's really hours on your body. How, how many days a week, how many hours a week can you go out there and, and put yourself through the ringer and, and shove calories in there and and recover? And so then I started looking at the, the total hours and that made me a better triathlete and treat it as one sport. I mean, you're working the same heart and you're working the same lungs. And yes, you have to develop different muscles, but the time on your heart and lungs and recovery was the key factor. So the grip, Mark Allen, what'd you learn from him? I think Mark was the smartest of all of us. Uh, he, for a guy and, and Dave Scott too. I mean, he put six Ironmans together. Uh, Mark Allen put six Ironmans together, Hawaii Ironmans. Uh, he just knew his body better than anyone else. And he knew when to play hard and he knew when to rest and he would disappear when on his rest days and he would only show up uh, when it was time to show who was boss out there in Boulder, Colorado or in San Diego. And so um, I just uh, enjoyed his cunningness and how intelligent he was about managing his body and putting it all together on the right day. Well, cause it's interesting when you go out for a training day, there's still mind games going on. So if you go out there on a you know a training ride and you're kicking Mark's ass, that there's there's a statement that's made there. So so Mark wasn't going to show up unless he was ready, basically to show you that he was the guy. Yeah, I mean in training, I, I only heard Mark probably once in one of our our uh, bike rides. And swimming, you know, we really didn't compete much in swimming. Yeah, it wasn't a big deal if you got beaten swimming. But it was a big deal uh, who was boss on the bike and on the run in your training days. And it was hard to put uh, ch uh, chunks in, in the armor, chinks, dents in the armor, whatever you want to say, uh, on Mark Allen. He was always on his A game when he showed up with uh, you or other people. 
because he had to deal with Kenny Souza too, who was a phenomenal runner and biker, you know, equal the mark, I would say, if not better, and, and especially in running. Yes. And um, so he had some big boys to play with, but he, he was always there, especially in altitude. Altitude yes. is game changer. You go out hard one day and you get to 10,000 feet and you're racing Kenny Souza and Mark Allen, you're toast for two or three days after that. So uh, you definitely had to be careful in altitude when you chose to play. Well, especially riding with Kenny, it's not like there's anything to draft behind. I mean, the guy's the guy a twig. And yeah, he had nothing to offer on the bike. I mean, just nothing. other than kicking your ass. <laughs> and Welchie, I remember the Orange County Performing Arts Center race. You two guys are running together, laughing uh, during the 10K. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, it's well, one of those. I had, Welchie, I had to be ahead of him. Him and I never ran together because we ran together, he would win the race. Yes. So I went uh, as hard as I could in that bike, so I would not have to run together for Greg Welch. Because you knew. he had such a natural talent that I did not want to be with him off the bike. And then that young kid coming up, you had Simon Lessing, who he, still you look at as one of the greatest of all time. Oh, yeah. he He's definitely, you know, put him in, in the big four. I mean, that guy was balanced in all three sports. He could do it. Um, and Tinley. What did Tinley bring to the table? Um, Tinley, another <laughs> another overtrainer. Yes, another overtrainer. Uh, did too many Ironmans, but uh, just a great guy to be working out with. A great spokesman for the sport, and great respect for all the hours he put into his body. I mean, if you know, if you want to take a car and put six hundred thousand miles on it, it was Tinley that would be doing it. You know, and. Um, I just think I look at Tinley as a, one of the greater spokespersons for the sport. All the articles he's written, and you know he's got Ironmans under his belt where he's, he's won. Uh, you know I can't say enough about Scott Tinley what he's done for the sport. You know it's interesting because you had you know when you're talking about going to a race, uh, if you're going to Ironman Australia wherever, you know, people had different agendas. So Mark and Dave are going there to win the race. Tinley's building a clothing brand. So he might take less appearance fee, right, to, to go there because they'll give him a free ticket and a chance to promote his business. So it's like it, everybody's got a little – and for him to race a lot meant more exposure for his brand. Yeah, he had the more entrepreneur uh, strategy where we were going for the wins maybe. Yeah. I don't know if that was his style. I'm sure he'd want to win Ironman as well. He definitely put his heart and soul in to do so. Um, but – there's a lot of things that can go wrong in Ironman, and it's a lot to bet on for one day. Um, that's why the Olympic distance is working out better for me. You get a little more TV time uh, throughout the nation. Yes. Uh, thanks to USTS and some of the other races they film. Uh, so I think that's to help me in my career is just racing a lot in the sprints. I mean, one year I raced uh, 25 times in one year, and I think I was first in 20 of them. Yeah. Second and three and bombed in two. Um, and so that was a, a great way to keep your name out there. When I look at your progression at Ironman, in 85 was 938, 86, 916, 87, 902, then 88, 833. So it's like every year you're getting progressively faster. And that 88 race, uh, you're getting second to Molina by two minutes and 11 seconds. Did you look back at that race and go, where could I, in a 140.6 mile race, where could I have found two minutes? 
uh, it's pretty hard to find two minutes when you're you're maxed out. I mean, right. I, I bombed the last six miles of the bike ride, a phenomenal bike ride, and then I just went through a low blood sugar for about 15 miles where it just there was just no juice. Now allowed Scott Molina to come up and, and get that two minute gap, that three minute gap for the next 26 miles. Yeah. But then I was able to regroup and just stay back there. Not only that, we had Kenny Glaw come up and join the party. Right. So Kenny Glaw and I were running side by side. So he was motivation too. And it was just balancing how fast can I go and how can I get sugar back into my body uh, to finish this race? Fortunately, Kenny kind of had a meltdown in, in the last part of the run. Scott Molina didn't. And uh, we just kept that gap that he established off the bike. But, you know, one thing that works for me is when you give 100%, 100%. So uh, yeah. I don't cry over spilled milk. I gave it my best. I feel good about what I did. And I uh, look for another day to race again. So you, you look at it when you're, you know, when you're younger and you're going, God, if I could have a job where I'm in St. Croix, where I'm in Hawaii, where I'm in Bahamas and, and races, things like that. You were one of those guys who loved it all, right? You, you, you seem like just being able to race, being able to travel, being able to meet great people and see the world. What a great adventure it was. I couldn't ask for a better 17 years. I mean, you bring your goggles, your, your bike and your running shoes. And so when you get into France or you get into the Bahamas, like you say, you really explore that place because the further away, say like flying six hours, you try to get there four to five to seven days early. So you have a little training as your body um, gets used to the environment you're in and the time zone you're in. And so you're just checking out the world and, uh, and you get to see the oceans and you get to see the mountains or good bike places, running places, single track trails, Austria. I could just go off. I think I've visited 23, 24 different countries and, and a lot of places within those areas. What was your favorite place to go? That's a really tough question because I always found magic in every place I went to, you know, from China to Canada to Australia to New Zealand or La Reunion. Um, right. Yeah, you just, you just find magic in every place you go. So it's hard to put one place as favorite. I think the most unique place you know, was China just to finally see that culture up front. Yeah. And yeah, it's one thing to go visit China and be in the big cities, you know, that's a big city, but it's neat. It was great because our races and I'm referring to adventure races I'm doing later on in my career. Oh, mile seven. Mile seven in China. And um, we got a chance to see the Yangtze River, one of the deepest canyons uh, next to the Grand Canyon and racing that river um, just to see the culture. I would say ones that ones that stick out in my mind the most of China. People connect you to St. Croix, obviously, because of the beast and the way you attack that that climb. What was it about that course that was great for you? Well, I got I think that was 1988 when I went off on St. Croix. Yeah. And you know, it was cold in Arcata, and I go, you know, I gotta get used to this heat. So I went there two weeks early and lived on St. Croix and biked that course probably eight times before the race. And so I knew it inside and out. I got used to the heat. Uh, and I think I caught people off guard to be that ready in May. And so everything, the, everything just lined up for that race uh, where I could, you know, I think I won by 10 minutes or something, but I was still as scared as heck that Mark Allen was going to run me down. He's always out there with a <laughs> dagger. And so uh, 
I ran pretty fearful. It was a 13 mile run off the right. It was a longer run, yeah. And actually, it was one of my better runs against Mark Allen on that day. Love that. The other great piece of video from back in the day, 89 Gold Coast try, Miles Stewart, uh, Rick Wells, you, Harold Robinson. I mean, not often you see like a four-person sprint for, for a win. And you know, you're one of those guys that I think rather than you love to win, but you also like great races and great competition. Was that one of those where you look back and go, what a great race that was? Oh, there's, you know, yeah, I tie for second with Richard Wells and side by side, four person 10K race. And, and I knew I had the weakest leg in the last uh, 400 yards. So I tried to go at 600 yards. Right. And uh, Miles just keyed off of that. And with his leg speed, uh, crushed Rich and I, Richard Wells and I. And then uh, Richard Wells went by too, and I got, and I just found one more gear, half a gear, and I was able to tie with Richard. But to have that crowd there, you know, I think there was thirty thousand people there. It's the crazy, line, and to feel the energy. And there's only like one or two times in my life where everything goes quiet. You've gone so deep, everything goes quiet, and you're just you're just gutting it. It lasts about twenty or thirty seconds. And then as soon as you cross the line, it all hits you, all the, all the pain of sprinting and oxygen debt. And so I'm just thankful to be in that situation, have those guys push me at, at a place called the World Championships. Uh, it's definitely with you know, things you don't forget. So you also, I, I remember we did some photos with the, that Redland cycling team. So you guys were in a real bike race and it's one thing to be, you know, doing a triathlon with three or four other guys, but to be in a crit, which I don't know if you had done that before, but being a crit race with some of the best guys in the world, that that had to be scarier than crap. Oh, you said it. Uh, I've done some crits, but it's with cat, cat uh, fours and threes. Yeah. So here we get this opportunity to, to allow to race with professionals. Uh, uh, I think Davis Finney was in that race. Yes. He did a fly by me on a corner that I couldn't believe. You know, I, I thought I was cutting this corner close enough. And that guy finds an inside line and shoots underneath me. Uh, get in a crit where you are in fear the whole time. You want to stay in that pack because you save a lot of energy. But at the same time, you're scared. Uh, shitless. Let's just get down to it. You're scared. <laughs> and you're just hanging on for dear life. And so not much I could do in crits because there was too much horsepower there. But in the bigger crits, like the five-mile loops, yeah. Uh, and you had to climb these hills, then you can, you know, you can be in the top 10 with these pros. Uh, and everything was firing, uh, you know, in that race for me. So I had a good race. And uh, Jimmy Riccatello was there. Kenny Souza was there. Jurgen Zach was there. Uh, I forgot the other two. Mark um, Montgomery, I think. Did he have money on that team? I'm not sure if he was in that group or not, but there was mm. one or two more good riders that were invited to that. And uh, it, it all, it just kicked our ass. And we, we learned what the cycling world was about. So are your twins, they must be they're, early twenties by now. Yeah. They're uh, tw just turned 24. 24. Wow. And uh, they were, were they both running cross country and track back in the day? No. Well, you know, K through eight, I yeah. became the uh, coach. Yes. And, um, we had a great time. They both got into running uh, really fit my daughter. Well, but my son was just a, uh, long lanky guy and 
for some reason, the endurance gene just did not hit him for his liking, but he still showed up and had a good time with his friends. Uh, but he didn't really pursue it after eighth grade. Uh, Chloe, she, you know, she ran a five minute mile. Um, yes. I think twice, one at Hubble State University and one up at Eugene, Oregon. And then she also won national championships in, in the uh, amateur racing out in North Carolina. So she was on top of it and got third in the state uh, for California. But then after that, her body started changing and did a painful walking backwards, getting slower every year, even though we're doing the same training, we're doing everything right. So it was really hard, um, you know, walking backwards in the high school career when you're at, you're at the top. Right. Um, but we just uh, kind of gave up on the goal of getting a scholarship and say, hey, just go enjoy school and no, don't run. And uh she still runs. She's into weightlifting right now. And we still run together, bike together, and do a lot of our own adventures. Fine. Uh, but she had a fun early on uh, running career. So since then, since you retired, and you had, did you have some stomach issues? And I know you had a, a, like a broken ankle or broken foot at one point. Was that what led to retirement? Nope. Uh, the first challenging thing is, you know, I had that stellar year, uh, second in Ironman. Uh, 20, 20 wins in one year. Yep. And then next year at St. Croix, I just got a bad bacteria in my stomach. And uh, I went from, you know, just being invincible and eating anything I could eat, want to eat, to looking for uh, in my training workouts, uh, make sure there's a porta potty every mile on my run. Yeah. And so it just totally changed uh, how I could train, how much I could put out. Everything was shot. Recovery was shot. Eating was shot. And uh, the biggest thing it took me away from was uh, being able to digest food on the fly. So Iron Man was going to disappear for a while right. after that. I think it took yeah. me four or five years to get out of that bacteria situation. But I still could manage those sort of races. And then within uh, two years, I started climbing the ladder, the ladder again, feeling strong again. Uh, but it really taught me a big lesson about nutrition and eating good food and taking care of your stomach and how it functions. I mean, I learned more than the doctors around me just because I had to live it. Yeah. And uh, you finally understood nutrition or got a better idea about it. But that was a, that was a game changer, that nutrition thing. And then the, the ankle thing, um, when I went to China and raced out there, uh, we were running through rice paddies and I twisted my ankle on a big old wet uh, cow hoof hole. Uh, didn't know I was really injured, but I had a fractured fifth metatarsal. Instead of trying to fix it then right after that season, I got into the season and the foot was not working right. Something was wrong. And finally, I had a stress fracture in that area and it took a whole year to heal. So I missed the whole season. Yeah. Uh, and then I tried to race two more years after that. So with when triathlon was announced as an Olympic sport for 2000, which is great. But at the same time, it's, it's a little 2000 a long way away and it's going to be draft legal. At that point, you you probably knew that, hey, draft legal is not my, that's not my bag. No, it took the silver bullet away out of my quiver. Yeah. Um, you know, I learned that when we have world championships in, uh, at Disneyland in Florida. Yep, 1990. Yeah. You know, that's, even though it wasn't a draft legal race, no one could get away from each other because there was enough real estate, roads wide enough, uh, and it was all flat. 
to do what you could do. So yeah, the writing was on the wall, how the draft legal racing was going to be for me. And at the same time I was getting, I think it was around 33 years of age, starting right. to get out of your prime and your, your speed. Uh, so the writing was on the wall that maybe chasing an Olympic gold medal was not going to happen. Not going to happen. I remember watching a race and it was a, I think it was a world championship up in Canada and it was, you know, everybody came out of the water with wetsuits on and everybody was together, right? There was really nothing broke it up. And at that point you sort of realized they got to figure something. If we're going to get into the Olympics, they got to figure something out because you can't be disqualifying people. Uh, if you, if you want this to be a television event. Yeah, they, they did have a tough decision to make. How can we make this uh, camera ready and sell it in the Olympics and disqualifications just put a black flag on the race. Um, you know, they're trying to do penalty. Remember the penalty boxes where yes. it's not drafting, you do a minute sit out or two minutes sit out. Uh, they tried that and finally they just gave up and went for the draft legal races. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was tough because we knew that we looked at that for a long time that I had never done a draft legal race. So I looked at uh, that drafting is cheating. And the first, the guy who was winning those races with those draft legals, I was your first cheater. So it, it took us a while to understand that's a different sport. It's made for television, but it helps grow the sport. It did help grow the sport. It's nice to have triathlons in the Olympics so the world can see it. And, uh, and athletes have a chance to chase a gold medal. Uh, and we still have our Ironmans out there. Um, I don't know how, I, you know, I've been out of the sport for 20 years, so I don't know how many cool races there are like Hilton Head, North Carolina, you know, national championships. Um, is there any non-drafting uh, non races out there anymore? Actually, probably the biggest change and something I always thought would have been great for you was is the growth of the 70.3 distance non-drafting because it's, a you know, the bike is a huge part of that. And these guys are going for 56 miles. They're going you know, like 158. They're going sub two hours. And now guys on the bike for Kona are going, you know, 402, 404. <laughs> it's, it's changed yeah. a ton. But what's cool is right now we've got Super League, which is really fast. Um, it is draft legal, but it's so short that it's great television. At the same time, we have uh, 70.3. I think there's over 120 of those around the world, which would have been, that would have been a showcase for Mike Pick. That those races would have been like you. Four hour races were not a bad race for me. Four hours. Yeah, that, that was good for you. Yeah. So it's, it's actually a good era right now. We got a lot of good stuff. The pro triathletes organization. I know both of us remember all the different organizations trying to get all the pros together. Well, they finally have done it and it's working really, really well. Pros are making good money, maternity leave, paternity leave, all that type of stuff. Wow. So you're crazy. Yeah. Good stuff, right? Good stuff yeah. for the sport. Athletes are making Good dollars. I think if you were num ranked number one in the PTO circuit this year, you got hundred thousand dollar bonus at the end of the year. So yeah, we like we like seeing it. Yeah, and the prize money is an Iron Man. What is it up to 200000 for first? No, it's still like one twenty. I think. And I don't think it's okay. gone up I, much. I knew, well, it's better than we were chasing. Yeah, well, and it's also the last. I think two thousand nineteen. It was five million dollars at Ironman races around the world between okay, Ironman and seventy point three. So that's and this year. This PTO is going to put out 5.5 million. So there's there's a good way to make a living. And Mike, when you look back on your career, uh, you must look back on it and go, "What a what a great opportunity I had." Well, it, it was a great opportunity, and 
it was such a treat to grow with the sport. Yes. You know, our power bars were bananas back then. Um, I think yeah. I, ate, I ate seven bananas to get through world's toughest, which is really my first Ironman or New Zealand, my first Ironman, uh, just little things like that. Uh, the arrow bars coming into play, people won't put them on bikes. I think Andrew McNaughton was the first one to put it on his bike. I was the second one and just learning how to get used in that position, but it was so much fun to go two miles an hour faster on your bike because of, of a, a design, um, and the other thing that I cool, I, I think it was great, is that the amateurs and the pros started the race together. Yes. When you had 800 to 1,000 people towing the line um, from amateurs to pros, I think that was one of my highlights to be a part of that. And I think part of the amateurs highlight, too, that they can jump right in with the professionals. Well, that's what makes our sport so special. You can't go to the Masters and say, hey, Tiger, let's go for let's play around together or to go to the U S open and, or to, you know, Wimbledon and play with the best in the world, but you can show up at Bakersfield or at Hilton head. And there's Mike pig and Scott Tinley and me as a 70 year old age grouper, right? We're, we're all riding the same course at the same time. Right. Right. And just see that mass start and all the water bubbling, like, you know, how Ironman looks every year, but those are the fond memories. I think is when everyone can, can mingle, we race together. And at the end of the day, uh, get to talk about it and share share stories, you know. Love it. Hey, Mikey, thanks. It's great to catch up. Happy birthday. Thank Please you. give our best to Marcy and the kids. Uh, we, we miss seeing you. I know. I wish I was out there a little bit more. But, gosh, there's so many things to do, do in the world right now. I'm, I'm into kiteboarding, stand-up surfing, uh, mountain biking. It's just uh, I can't stop being outside. How many hours a day are you playing? Not enough. Let's go. <laughs> Not enough. Mike Pig has been our guest. This is Breakfast with Bob. Not quite Kona edition. Mikey, thank you so much for taking so much time. Uh, love catching up with you. Yeah, I love catching up with you, Bob. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. Again, everybody, Mike Pig has been our guest. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. See ya.